Good morning, everybody. It's Monday, April 12th, and today we bring back an oldie but goodie with Preston Pish, the guy when it comes to everything blockchain and Bitcoin. Now, I interviewed him exactly a year ago where he predicted Bitcoin would break $100,000. Now, it didn't break $100,000, but it broke $60,000 back on Saturday two days ago, and ETH is up over $2,000. So the question is, were Preston's predictions right? Was he on the right track? He told me over 70% of his net worth is in Bitcoin. So how's it doing? Let's go back here with oldie but goodie. Enjoy. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka. Now, if you're hearing this, it means you're not currently on our subscriber feed. To subscribe, go to getlatka.com. When you subscribe, you won't hear ads like this one. You'll get the full interviews. Right now, you're only hearing partial interviews. And you'll get interviews three weeks earlier from founders, thinkers, and people I find interesting. Like Eric Wan, 18 months before he took Zoom public. We got to grow faster. Minimum is 100% over the past several years. Or bootstrap founders like Vivek of Question Pro. When I started the company, it was not cool to raise. Or Looker CEO Frank Bean before Google acquired his company for $2.6 billion. We want to see a real pervasive data culture, and then the rest flows behind that. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. There, you'll find a private RSS feed that you can add to your favorite podcast listening tool, along with other subscriber-only content. Now look, I never want money to be the reason you can't listen to episodes. On the checkout page, you'll see an option to request free access. I grant 100% of those requests, no questions asked. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Preston Pish. Now, Preston and I go back a little bit. There's a little dull moment in between, but I will never forget when they had me on their hugely, way more successful now, by the way, podcast called We Study Billionaires. Him and his partner, Stig, do a great job on the show. And I said, you know what? I want to meet these guys. They have a unique way of breaking down extremely intense economic information into stuff that me, the average guy, can consume. So I went and actually met them in Omaha a couple of years ago at Buffett's annual event. And we had a ton of fun watching Munger and Buffett, you know, chug their their Coke and drink their seized candy. So Preston, we want to have a lot to talk about. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, we did the uh, run of shame in the morning, getting <laughs> into the stadium together. Nathan and I were... were the umbrellas. That's right. That was it. Well, (laughs) look, we have so much to talk about. And so I was just telling you, the risk in this interview is that because you are so smart with everything economics is that we end up getting over people's heads. So I really want to basically take everything happening right now in the economy, the Fed's balance sheet doubling, potentially even going higher than doubling, Uh, you know, the government buying corporate bonds, which it's never done before, Uh, you know, oil inventory almost being out. What does that mean for us? But specifically, the, the cap I want us both to wear during this interview is for the person listening right now that has maybe worked really hard over the last bull market and saved maybe 10,000 bucks, like what should they do right now? And if you're listening and only saved 100 bucks, well then divide by you know 100 or 10. Or if you have 10 million to spend, multiply by 10. But Preston, you think we can do that? Can we, can we look through everything with that lens? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So to kick things off, let's go to the the stimulus plan. Okay. So so February 24th, balance sheet of the Fed, four trillion. March 27th, two trillion CARES Act passed, 250 billion for small business loans. That's now exhausted. 500 billion for discretionary treasury spending. 
and then kind of who knows what happens with with the rest. Uh, the balance sheet today of the Fed is now six point four trillion. For the person that has worked really hard to save liquid cash, it's money under their mattress right now over the past ten years. What does this increase in the Fed's balance sheet mean for their cash holdings? So, what I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear me say is. All of this stuff that we've seen in the last couple months with the expansion of the of the Fed balance sheet really isn't anything out of the ordinary from what we've seen over the last 10 years. So although the spike that you've seen in the last couple months has had a very significant jump, um, if you take the US central bank's balance sheet and then you take all the other major economies, call it the, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank, you take the People's Bank of China, you smush all of those central banker balance sheets together, and you look at the growth of how much the printing has, because that's what we're talking about here. They're just printing, right? They're, yep. they're taking cash, they're swapping it for the fixed income securities. Now they're doing it for, for corporate debt as well. But if you would plot the growth of all those central bankers' balance sheets for the last 10 years since the 2008 crisis... You would literally have a chart, and I can send you this chart if you have like show notes or whatever that you want to pump out to to your. Uh, we'll audience. edit it. We'll edit it in. Yeah, we can uh, we can do that, and and I'll provide you this chart. But when you look at this chart, when you combine all those balance sheets together, it's just this nice linear growth that has just continued to to chug along for literally the last ten years. Now, what you saw happen, um, and this I'm looking at the chart right now. When you look at the end of 2017. Uh, the U.S. came out and they said, we're going to do this thing called quantitative tightening, which is effectively them doing the opposite of the expansion and they're going to try to tighten the balance sheet. Well, they did this for almost a year that they tightened. And then they got to a point where it really started getting squirrely in the market and they realized that they were uh, putting, them, putting the whole global economy in a position where the dollar is getting stronger. Um, it's putting this liquidity squeeze on the market. The stock market started acting a little crazy, and and now you got the the coronavirus kind of hit, and the timing of that was like, oh my god, we've got to do the liquidity that we had been doing for the previous eight years up until that point. So when you look at this chart and you look at all the the printing that they've done just in the last month, that line takes you straight back up to the if you were going to plot all these balance sheets together, where you had this nice linear line that was just going straight up. This printing that you've seen in the last month just goes straight back up to where that line was heading, and it's going to continue to just continue to press on. And it gets to, and so all of that just to to the listener who's listening to that is saying, so okay, so what does that mean? Well, how is that any different than where we were at before? Is is this any different? And what I would tell you is, what you're seeing right now is the end game of currencies. Of fiat currencies in particular, and it's playing out. And how much longer can the printing persist until until trust kind of breaks down? I really don't know the answer to that. But um, effectively, what you have and you've had since 2008, 2009 is it's kind of this default kind of position for all these central banks around the world with their fiat currencies. So how do you, how can you see that, or how can I make that argument? So well, hold on, and, and clarify the clarify the argument. So the argument is that we're seeing a default of fiat currency globally is the argument. And so I think that this is a, if you talk to anybody on Wall Street, they're going to balk at that idea very quickly. They're going to say, oh, well, look at, 
look at the, the yields in the fixed income market. They're perfectly stable. Well, they're stable because the government keeps buying them. They've, they've, been, they've been the buyer. Uh, they will not allow interest rates to rise. And, and they can't allow interest rates to rise simply because they're issuing debt at a, at a pace that is far outstripping the revenues that they collect from, from uh, tax revenues. Okay, And as long as they're doing that, they can't allow interest rates to go up because now all of a sudden they've got to pay that, that debt back at a higher interest rate. They have to keep pushing the interest rates down lower. And so when you look at interest rates all around the globe and you look at Japan, pegged at zero, been there for a while. Europe, pegged at zero, been there for a few years. Here in the US, they're starting to get down across the whole duration of the bond yield curve. You get out to like the 30-year, there's still a little bit of yield left. But if you look at it in real terms, which is inflation-adjusted terms, you're at negative interest rates across the whole duration here in the US. So my argument is once you have interest rates pegged at 0%, now they can't, they can't manipulate the market through printing by dropping interest rates because that's what they've done since 2008. Go before the 2008 crisis, your your interest rates across the whole duration of the curve was above five percent. Why did Powell decrease the rate? Like we had a little cushion to work with for the next big emergency, and for whatever reason, a couple of weeks ago, he made the decision that decreasing it now is the right time to do it. And you can argue whether it had an impact or not, but what we know is we now have less gunpowder for a future crisis. Was that the right decision? Well, I think that they're they're in a position where they have to do this now. Okay. They, he has to sustain liquidity into the market or the whole thing goes boom, right? And so he's in, he's in a situation where he basically has a gun to his head to make these decisions because if he doesn't, it's, it's going to be far worse than, uh, than continuing to do it. It's almost like you've got a patient that's on life support and you can keep giving the patient more medicine, but the medicine that you're giving them will ultimately kill them no matter what. Okay, but at the same time, it extends the life for another couple months. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that what we've got playing out here is only going to be a couple more months before things go boom. I think it's going to be longer than that. But um, that's effectively what quantitative easing is, and that's what universal basic income is. Because both of those things are um, those. Are, when you want to break down the tools that that these central bankers have, you can really kind of break it into two buckets. Bucket one is quantitative easing. That's taking a bunch of cash that you just that you just printed, and you step into the open market, and I'll use open market with quotes in the air, <laughs> and they buy those bonds for all that 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 cash that they just printed, and they swap it. Well, all that ca- cash goes into the hands of people that are sitting on billion dollar bond tranches, and so then what do they do? They pump that back into the stock market, and so the money sits and retains itself up there at the highest level, bidding the market cap of stocks, bonds, real estate, all these things. But guess who's not receiving any of that cash flow from quantitative easing? The whole middle to lower class of not just the US, but this is at a global scale that you're seeing this, that that money's not trickling down to those people. Whoever doesn't own those equities, they're not going to get the increase in that, right? In that stock. And and, yeah. Bingo. and before you continue that thought, I just want to, the other end of that, when that money goes into the system, yeah. you know, the U.S. is essentially buying its own treasuries, right? Where do the, who, where do the treasuries go? Well, so then the, they're, they're sitting there at the, at the treasury, right? The treasury takes possession of those instruments, and then they're collecting the, the interest. And it's just this big, giant do loop of 
confusion, first of all. Yeah, because what interest rate are they making on the, on the treasury well, security? Well, they don't, they're not going to pay themselves, right? So they just, they're pulling it off the market is effectively what they're doing. So all those interest, in, all those debt instruments are sitting on the open market and they're effectively clawing it off the market and, and stuffing cash into the hands of the people that had it. So you can continue to keep this farce afloat as long as those intru- instruments exist to do that swap with. And so my argument now is once you push the rates down to 0%, okay, you're running out of the instruments to do the swap with. And once you run out of those instruments, to, and when I'm saying instruments, I'm saying the debt, uh, all the bonds that they're swapping for, once they run out and you've pushed the rates down to 0%, and now they're even trying to push them into negative percent, which is insane, right? Like, give me $100 and I'll guarantee you I'll give 95 back tomorrow, right? Or, or next year. Like, it's insane. But that's what they're trying to do in order to continue to provide liquidity into the system. Here's where, here's where it gets interesting. And this goes back to my comment of the central banks having two vehicles to insert the cash to keep the velocity of money going. So, Which were what to repeat those two things again, quantitative so easing and... And universal basic income. So we've, we've experienced nothing but quantitative easing for the last 10 years. Okay, since 2008. That's been the, the weapon of choice by central banks to provide liquidity into the system so that the whole thing doesn't go boom. Okay, so they've been doing that. And what's, what's the effect of quantitative easing? Bonds go up, stocks go up, real estate goes up. The value of every single uh, asset on the planet goes up when interest rates go down. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact because of discount cash flow models, right? Mm-hmm. So all of that gets bid and it got bid for 10 years. Well, the, the impact of that decision is you gut the middle class mm-hmm. because they don't, they're, not, they're not benefiting from that. The middle class and people who don't have any disposable income do not benefit from the stock market going up whatsoever. Okay. So now you're at a point where they've, they've clawed all these bonds off the market. They've bid the stock market into oblivion. They've gutted the middle class. And now they're at a point where they have to start implementing the, free ca- or the, the printed cash into the bottom of the economy, which is people like you and me. Okay? They've got to provide cash to all the, the citizens of the nation or else you're going to get into a situation where you start to get civil unrest. Because people, 20% of the labor force doesn't have a job right now. A lot of people are going to look at the COVID-19 and say, well, that's the reason why. But in a year from now or two years from now, and they, they're still seeing the struggle that exists due to inflationary monetary policy that produces deflationary prices, that's still going to be at play until something totally disrupts this. Okay, so Preston, now- let me, let, all right, let me back up for a second before I go deeper on this. So $2 trillion CARES Act, $350 billion guaranteed small business loans. 500 billion the treasury who knows what they're going to do with that there's 100 billion back in march late march that say hey we'll buy corporate bonds what portion of that 2 trillion do you know i don't know off the top of my head what portion of that 2 trillion is going towards the ubi model 1200 you know check i don't i i don't know that figure off the top of my head if i had okay. to guess i would say one third of that is going to ubi uh, universal basic income that's the checks that are going into everybody's bank account so i would it's like I would six, guess, 700 billion yeah i would guess around one third of that now the thing that's going to blow your socks off is, is those numbers that you're saying, those are just the tip of the iceberg. 
Like this thing is just getting started. Well, so how that's my, so how, you know, there's a lot of people going, I could see this going to 8 trillion, 10 trillion, 15 trillion. If you had to guess where it's like, that's a, that's what scares me about all of this is the second you start giving out checks, right? The second you start buying corporate bonds with no end date, these are things that are addictive, especially when you're trying to get reelected. It's going to be very hard to turn these things off. So when, not turning it, them off. when does it stop? They're not turning them off anytime soon. I can tell you that. Um, this, is, this is the most interesting thing about money. When the amount of the money goes to infinity, the value of money goes to zero, right? And so you're in a position where and it's not just in the US, this is literally across the entire globe. They're all printing as fast as they possibly can. They're going to start stuffing all this money into UBI now because if they don't, they're going to have unrest amongst all the citizens in these nations. So they're going to start pumping this money into the bottom of the economy. Okay. So now what does what incentive structure does that now create? And I, I I'm think not going to work. Where, I'm not going to work if I'm getting free checks from the government. I'll bingo. say that much. Bingo. Okay. So that's the incentive structure that you now create with UBI. Now, people who are hearing this, they're saying, well, this, this is chaos. This is insanity. What's driving all of this behavior? Okay. And it's one simple thing that's driving all of this. The currency is not pegged. Okay. The dollar is not pegged and neither is any other fiat currency. They're not pegged. And that's what, that's what drives this behavior of this runaway inflationary monetary policy. You can create unlimited amounts of it. There's no, there's no shortage of supply. And they're incentivized to do it. So let me, let me give you an example, two examples of why they're incentivized to do it. Let's just look at it from a political domestic country standpoint. If you're an elected representative from a big district, and let's say you have some large defense company that's in your district, okay? Well, when you go in there and you're trying to work the budget for the, for the coming uh, year, you want that $5 billion contract in your district, right? So you're going to do whatever it takes in order to make sure that that is supplanted into that budget and, and the appropriation of that. So these elected representatives who, are, who do not have term limits are incentivized to not really care about the country as a whole and the, the budget constraints as a whole. Their, interest, their self-interest is to that district in order to get the funding in there, regardless if it goes over the top of the tax revenues. So there's incentive one that's broke that creates this incentive when you don't have a pegged currency. Because when you don't have a pegged currency... There's no ramifications of buying power globally if everyone else is competing to devalue their currency. And guess what? They are. They're incentivized. Every other country is incentivized to devalue their country because, or devalue their currency because when they do that, guess what happens? If I'm China and I devalue my currency because there's no peg. The goods okay, get cheaper, right? That's right. They get cheaper and now I, all this money gets sucked into that country. All the other fiat money gets sucked into that country like a vacuum in order to buy their goods and services to be exported. Mm-hmm. Okay, So now what you have is this, is this competitive dynamic between all these other nations in order to devalue their currency because there's no peg. No one's playing by a pegged economy. And so all this goes back to 71. You come off the gold standard and this is and what a lot of people don't understand about the peg and coming off the gold standard in 71 was it all originated back to Bretton Woods, which was a 1944 agreement that 
all these, all these major economies come to the table, they sit down at Bretton Woods and they say, all right, the dollar is going to be pegged to gold. And then we're all going to peg our currencies to the dollar. Okay. That, that agreement lasted from 1944 up to 1971. And then the US came off the gold standard. The reason the US came off the gold standard in 71 is because they, uh, they were having fun with the way that they interpreted a peg, a global, uh, a peg from the dollar to gold. I'm sure you've heard the uh, term money multiplier. This is what banks can basically. This is how much the bank holds versus how much they push out in the economy, which then is coordinated with the central bank of the Federal Reserve was doing this from 44 up to 71. Well, they kept, and this is another chart I could give you. The through that period of time. The, the Fed was basically adjusting their money multiplier that was putting more and more money into the system, which then got to the point by 71 that if, that if all these countries said, hey, we want our claim to gold for how much this piece of paper represents, the US would have had all the gold reserves sucked out of the country because they were mani- manipulating the money multiplier from 44 to 71. So they come off the gold standard in 71. When they do that, it was an immediate break of every single peg for every single currency in the entire globe. And then you got into this incentive structure that you and I were talking about where they're competitively devaluing their currency. If you'd pull up a, uh, if you'd pull up a 10-year, uh, the, the 10-year bond and you'd look at the interest rate on the 10-year bond over this entire period of time that I'm describing from 1944 until today, the chart would look like it, it would go straight up with the interest rate going straight up because because we were manipulating the money multiplier, all that money was flowing straight into the U.S. We break the peg, and then for them to, in order to keep this this system afloat, they systematically kept dropping interest rates until they got to zero percent, which is where we are today. So when you look at that ten-year yield chart over this eighty-year period of time, it's this perfect goes straight up, goes straight back down, and now you're pegged at zero percent, and that's when currencies fail. Yeah, point point six six percent. We have to give cre- a little credit here, <laughs> where, cre- where credit is due. Well, in nominal terms. In nominal, nominal yeah. Terms. So if you I talk a, real terms. You're negative. I have a bunch of follow-up questions on this. The first one is the most like basic, which is more money that's printed, less money becomes worth. So if the Fed's balance sheet has doubled, does that mean the listener holding ten thousand dollars three months ago now only has five thousand dollars essentially? Yes, but it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. So right. see, part of the big question I'm asking myself is like, fine, print money. If nobody can feel it, it doesn't matter. There's no repercussions. There's no negative incentives. So like, when will well, we feel it? When does somebody well, feel it? So you got you to gotta adjust your, your index for feelings. Because if you're, if you're talking about, does it feel any different between today and a month ago? And right now with COVID-19, that's probably a bad example. But like, if you're only measuring a one-month duration of time on it feeling different, you're not going to feel anything. Mm-hmm. But if you would go back 20 years ago and ask your parents, are things different now than they were before as far as just how much you could just... You, know, you could go out and work and make some money and come back and buy a Corvette and you'd still have disposable income left. Like When, you're, when your parents were in their 30s and 40s that was a real thing today it's literally how much per, how much money a person makes in an entire year to to buy a corvette so the thing that's changed and it's happened so slowly and that's where i guess i get 
I'm not saying that I'm sticking up for central bankers like Powell, who's, who's going out here and doing this, but he's a victim of literally 80 years, eight decades of decisions that preceded him that have now put him in this situation that he's got a gun to his head. And that's what, and, and you'll hear these, you'll hear these very myopic uh, opinions as to, oh, well, this is Trump or this was Obama or this was George Bush or all these, they always tie it to some type of political narrative. But when you, when you really come out to like a 50,000 foot view as to what's driving this, this trend has been in place since literally 1981 mm-hmm. that, that we're seeing this downward in interest rate drop that's being controlled by central banks. And now you're at 0%. And this is the end game. I want to talk and spend a few minutes on Bretton Woods in post-World War II. One of the big things that you saw happen there was a Treaty of Versailles, where essentially, you know, we wanted to weaken Germany, right? The, you know, the America, you know, America's wanted to basically put in an order that allowed free commerce all around the globe. That means we have warships everywhere. That means we're all in treaties everywhere. That means NATO, all this stuff, G7, all this stuff is created. You know, ultimately in Germany, I think the effective terms, it was essentially $800 billion in today's value that they essentially owed back, right, as war reparations to the allies. And there was a little guy, maybe not so little guy, but there's a little guy over there called Hitler that said, this freaking sucks. We should have yeah. kept fighting in the war. We could have won the war. And then we went out to make all these stupid payments. And before you know it, this momentum, he's a you know, brilliant marketer. You go back and say Hitler takes over the country and we end up with just total travesty, total disaster because of this populism. Do we have to watch out for that now when you see, you know, only one third of the two trillion tax, this is a small example, but only one third going to, again, UBI to the have nots and two thirds going to the haves, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer? Well, I think the reason you're seeing the two thirds piece is because they're bailing out all these companies. They're going to start bailing out all the municipalities. And that's the one people aren't even ready for is you're going to start having those. How big a problem is that? I don't know the (laughs) number. How many many municipal in the U.S.? That's the thing. No one knows. And and here's where it even gets crazier is it's not just in the U.S. This is also over in Europe, over in Japan. It's it's everywhere. The end game is is now in play. And so going back to your example, just to talk about that a little bit, what a lot of people don't necessarily understand about World War II and the rise of Hitler was the reparations that were put in place after World War One that held Germany's feet to the fire for for World War One, but they they had to do what they did. They had to you're, go. In by the way, country. you're right. I made a factual mistake there. Those were I, I think I said World War Two. It was World War One when that one. happened. Yes, yeah. yes. And so we're, the the agreements that were put in place in World War One basically laid the groundwork for Hitler's rise. That laid the the groundwork for this this extreme populism that happened in Germany because they had to pay back an unpayable amount. And so, and, and trust me, I'm not trying to uh, condone anything that happened with any of these people during that period of time. Yeah, yeah. Sure me, me either, but patterns in history are, you have to learn from <laughs> yeah. it, right? So it was, a, it was an unpayable amount. They went into hyperinflation in the, in the 1920s in Germany, and then it, it laid the groundwork for that to, to occur. So do... Do I think something like that could happen? Absolutely. When you get into these, these massive shifts on a global scale of effectively fiat currency failing, I mean, that's, that's my argument here. An unpayable um, amount is the word you use to describe yeah. Germany and reparations and the rise of Hitler. Yeah. At what point have we printed so much? There's so much debt, whether US or global, it's an unpayable amount. You're already there. Yeah. 
you're already there. It's just uh, what does this all transition to is what it really comes down to. So how can, and so then you get into all the game theory. How can you get this many nations to come to the table and come to an agreement on pegging their currency when the incentive structure that we talked about earlier is that they don't come to the table and agree to a, a global peg? They don't have an incentive to say, you know what? Let's go back and do another Bretton Woods. They don't have that incentive structure. Okay, hold on a second. Don't we have a little extra leverage because we are the, re- the the reserve currency of the world? Can't we force that conversation a little bit? You, yeah, absolutely you can. But that means you have to agree to it as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And that's going to be the challenge because, I mean, I'm... When I look at the elected officials in office right now, do I think that they understand all this? Not really. Most of them I don't think really do. Um, And so then they would have to understand why a peg would be very important. I think most of them, if you would, if you'd look across, and this is, this is uh, Democrat, Republic agnostic, you know, party agnostic. I think both of them are going to say, well, our greatest uh, competitive advantage in the global marketplace is that we control the dollar. So to, to have them sit down and, and come to the conclusion that we're going to peg ourselves, I just don't necessarily see them agreeing to any of that. Plus, they've been total, um, these, the people that are elected in office, the net worth of all these people elected in office is very high if you look at it from a macro standpoint. And so they have been, uh, they've benefited from this model. So they don't think there's anything wrong with this model. Yep. So to get, again, what I can't, you know, I just think back to my mom teaching me basic dollars and cents at my first job working on, it was called Pumpkinville in Leesburg, Virginia. I worked the hay slide during Halloween, right? And I made, you know, whatever it was, 12 bucks an hour and I would save, save, save. And then I'd go like buy something. You know, one of the things about 08 and TARP that doesn't get talked about a lot is yes, the government, there was a massive bailout, but they made money on that bailout over time because by April of 2013, not only was that, it was about 440 billion distributed for, you know, around the TARP period. Not only was it paid back, but they made about, you know, 66 billion in profits because they bought a lot of these bank stocks low, sold them high, and they got 3.6 billion in interest off the bailout specifically to the bank. So that money was essentially paid back is that does that mechanism exist in this two trillion dollar CARES Act, and do you think it will exist if any other stimulus bills come out to try and you know prevent the the future of you know COVID the COVID downturn? So that worked because the central bank stepped in and conducted quantitative easing for the next ten years. That's why that model worked in 08. Um, but now that you have interest rates at zero percent, I don't necessarily know that that model is going to work because I'm of the opinion that the only way they're going to be able to keep social uh, unrest unrest from happening is through the use of UBI. So when you use UBI and you start pumping all this money into the masses, well, your CPI index, your inflation index is going to potentially start creeping up. And guess what? You're, that's, that is not going to be good for the bond market because the bond market trades off of a premium of inflation. So and, and same with stocks. So in the stock market is based off of interest rates. Well, they're going to try to peg the interest rates at 0%. They're going to try to do this UBI and you're just going to see, in my opinion, you're going to see distrust break down in, in, the, uh, in the fiat currencies. And when that happens, it's going to be this aggressive selling that's going to make it pop. For that to happen, for that to happen though, okay, and this is what I think is 
really important to this whole conversation. For that to happen, there has to be some other currency. There has to be somewhere else to go before that trust is going to break down completely. And so then that goes into the interesting discussion that I'm sure we're going to get there eventually. <laughs> we, we, how about we, we'll leave that as an open hook for a second. Yes, well, yes. You guys, so the, question, the big question we'll come back to is, what is the fiat alternative that has to exist before fiat truly crashes? We'll come back to that in a second. <laughs> I mean, your, your traditionalists will say it's gold, right? They'll say, well, because gold has effectively a fixed supply, because when you look at the amount of stock that exists in the entire world, and then you look at the flow that's put onto the market from gold miners, it's really minuscule in relation to the stock that exists. So that's why gold functions as a fixed supply currency that if you have it, it can't be debased at any type of speed that's, that's bad for the holder. And so the idea would be that people run the gold and you're already seeing the price of gold shoot way up through all of this. Quick prediction. What, what do you think? Will gold pass 2000 in the next three weeks? Oh, I, I can't do a three week time frame. I, in the coming this is, year. This guy's so good at this. Long term. <laughs> I love it, Preston. You're so no, good. I just don't have any skill in that area. Like I can't, there's yeah. no way I can say what in the world's going to happen in the next three weeks. Um, so, so gold is one option as an alternative. And all my Bitcoin lovers listening are going, wait a second. We can't unlimited, like we can't print unlimited Bitcoin. In fact, we have a halving coming up, you know, very soon where there's going to be even less available. So we'll, we'll circle back to all that in a second. I want to go back though quickly to kind of the have versus have nots conversation. So American Airlines CEO, Doug Parker, right, the other day was out, you know, saying, fine, we'll accept $4.1 billion as a grant from the government. We'll do $1.7 billion as a loan. Who knows how low that interest rate is going to be? It's probably basically a grant anyway, right? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing, right? And then we're also going to apply for another $4.75 billion in extra loans. So let's call it $10 billion potentially going to American Airlines. There was potentially $17-ish billion kind of earmarked for Boeing, these guys. This is money that's not going to get like paid back, right? Nope. So like if, if, if American Airlines doesn't have to pay that back, it's the have-nots tax revenue paying for that, correct? Yeah. Any, any printing that happens is a universal tax on everybody, whether you have a high net worth or not. That's, that's all it is. So for someone listening right now, sitting on $10,000, I think we already established, you agree with Ray Dalio, who was on Bloomberg yesterday, saying it's useless to hold bonds right now because they're going to be worth nothing. So get rid of yep. your bonds as fast as possible. The second question is, people are listening going, Preston, Nathan, should I use 10% of my 10000 I have saved? Should I put 1000 bucks and try and predict which equities the government's going to bail out and ride those things up? Now, I'm choosing not to do this because I have no idea how to evaluate this and I have no insider information on what the government's going to do. What is your advice here? Do you buy cheap so, stocks? So I've got a very controversial opinion on this. And I think a lot of people in my community are rolling their eyes at me for not having stocks going through this because so much of it is dependent on government decision-making, whether they're going to add more billions and trillions into the market and who's going to be the, the recipient of that because that's the one you want to own. I mean, it's just that simple. So um, I'm with you I, and I'm with Dalio as well. And, and Dalio's opinion, just so people understand, and he wrote about this in his book, uh, Big Debt Crises. Um, in that book, he talks about when you get into these, and I'm just going to say the word, hyperinflation type situations, um, Investing in stocks is a mixed bag because it really comes down to which types of businesses do well 
in a depression-like scenario, in a scenario that all heck is, is breaking loose in the economy, but you have companies like, I'm just going to say it, Zoom, the one we're using, like that's going to do very well through this. Um, you got to think of businesses like that that are going to do well. And if you do want to have equity exposure, you need to think of a business that's just going to be able to handle the extreme volatility that's going to happen here in the coming uh, year of the market, next year to three years. It's going to be insane volatility. So you have to own those types of businesses. You got to own, like Google would maybe be another good example. Um, those types of businesses that are going to be able to function. Uh, on digits, I think are going to be very useful. Uh, those types of businesses are going to do well. Now, it gets tricky because when you go through, like if you go back and you look at a hyperinflation event in Venezuela, guess what happened to the stock market? It went right up. It, it just went zoop. But compared to, and people who are listening to this couldn't see my hand movement. They, they just heard the zoop. Um, <laughs> they appreciated the sound. <laughs> More sound effects. <laughs> More sound effects. Uh, but so the, the stock market went straight up. But relative to gold, and in my opinion, relative to Bitcoin, those stocks are going to underperform. They are, it's, it's, and it really comes down to a key definition term called buying power. How much are you going to be able to preserve or even accelerate your buying power through this crazy situation we're about to experience? And so, can you buy the stock market and will it go up in nominal terms? Absolutely. Um, is it going to be a rough and rocky road? Absolutely. Is it going to outperform gold or Bitcoin? In my opinion, not even close. So, will there be onesies and twosies? Probably. But to find those and to be right is going to be tricky. And so that's the real challenge moving forward. And sometimes just, just, just to, and Preston, just to make that real for a second. So Zoom at 150 bucks a share. Let's assume a Venezuela situation kind of happens. What you're saying is, and maybe Zoom gets government bailout because they deem video conferencing as necessary for, so we don't go crazy, right? You're saying that stock will do, of course, it could go way up. It could go up to... Uh, 10,500. But when you buy it today for 150 bucks, that's equal to about 150 bottles of Coke, right? At a dollar pop from the vending machine. You know, a year or two years from now, if hyperinflation sets in, yeah, that stock might look great, but guess what? You can't afford no, it's now a can of Coke is not a dollar can of Coke. It's $5 a can of Coke. So your purchasing power for that same increase is nowhere near equal. That's the argument you're making. Yeah. So I would, if I was going to explain it as something that everybody can understand, so everyone's played pool, right? And I always way overestimate my skill when I play pool. I'll get down <laughs> on the table and let's say I'm just trying to hit a solid into the pocket, but your, your stripe ball is there in the way. But if I hit my other solid ball into my other solid ball, I can maybe make that shot. So it's like this, this multi-hit shot into the pocket. That's how I would describe investing in stocks because not only do you have to be not only do you have to get the, the macro situation right, which I would tell you is, is hard enough as it is, but now you have to actually know how to do the, the proper asset valuation on probably a growth stock to get both of those situations right and to outperform something that's just an easy layup kind of shot. The ball's sitting right next to the pocket and you can just bump it in, um, which, which is what I would describe as gold and Bitcoin. That's the easy shot. Got it's it. just like it's just simple. But if you're trying to invest in Zoom, well, I can't tell you if Zoom's a good buy or not. 
I just know people are going to continue to use it. So to know if it's a good buy, now I have to dig into all their free cash flows. I got to look at their competitive advantage and what that competitive advantage is going to look like in three to five years from now. Like I've got to do all this analysis on top of getting that right, that it would be a good play in a you know, depression-like scenario. Couple more geopolitical questions before we go back to Bitcoin, gold, things like that. You know, you're seeing a lot of people go nationalism, nationalism, nationalism. You know, a very real example is we should never, ever, ever, any future pandemic be reliant on another country to produce masks for us. President Trump goes, get all your supply chains out of China right now for these five essential materials. They pull back into the States, even though it might be more expensive and less productive, less efficient to produce them in the States, it's deemed a a necessary asset to ensure the durability of the United States. So it happens. This is directly in contrast to Ray Dalio's very popular YouTube video, which argues for three main components of the economy, productivity growth, short-term debt cycles, and long-term debt cycles. What people are saying now is sacrifice productivity and efficiency for durability. So what wins? So in, in that scenario, what you're talking about is market manipulation, right? And what this whole thing is about is market manipulation over 80 years. <laughs> so when, when the president comes out and says that, I understand why he's saying it. He's saying it because he, he doesn't want dependencies in critical areas that... that um, become a strategic defense uh, security type thing, right? So I understand the argument and that's his prerogative, whether that, that's valid or not, or whether it's a real concern, that's for the listener to decide. But anytime you step in and you manipulate the free and open market, there is a price to be paid for the manipulation. And so when you're doing more manipulation after 80 years of manipulation, uh, based on how we've basically controlled how powerful the dollar is through the money multiplier and then through interest rates. And now we're here at the end game and you're doing more manipulation into the, into the quote unquote free and open market. All in my opinion, all it's going to do is just accelerate the inevitable, mm-hmm. which is a currency failure. It's going to accelerate that. Do you think, I mean, we just saw the numbers come out 6.3% contraction in Chinese GDP in Q1. Um, you know, Goldman and I forget who else, Morgan Stanley, I think are say, saying, we think 20 to 30% drop in output GDP Q2 this year in the United States. I mean, obviously this is because of the crisis of COVID, but some of the other effects going to be people wanting to nationalize some critical supply chains. And we are going to see productivity and global GDP decrease, not only because of the virus crisis, but because of nationalism and isolationism. I agree with everything you just said. You're gonna, that's exactly what you're going to see. Um, as long as they are able to continue to implement inflationary monetary policy, the incentive structures are going to continue to be there and you're going to see us get closer and closer to the nationalization of, of assets, of equities. Mm-hmm. You've seen that play out in Japan. I mean, they've bought, I don't know what percent of their stock market through ETFs. Okay. So it's, it's, it's not like they're stepping in and buying 100% ownership of business. They're not XYZ. picking winners. They're acting they're not, laissez-faire. They're, they're acting laissez-faire. But if you look at how much of a controlling share they have in the voting of these, of these markets and of these, these stocks, um, they're a majority shareholder. The government is. So have they nationalized it? I would argue they have. 
And so you're not there yet in the U.S. because they're just buying the debt, which yep. doesn't have the voting rights to it. Um, but if they start buying the common stock, which has voting rights to it, things are going to get pretty interesting because they're effectively nationalizing the, the businesses in the country. Well, this is what I can't wrap my head around, right? So let's assume this year, not just next quarter, this year, GDP d- decreases by 10 to 15, maybe up to 20%. So you go from 22 trillion in GDP, you are 21-ish trillion, down to call it 16, 17. Well, the debt's not going to change. It might even go up, right? It's at 22 trillion. So like right now, before any GDP and output decreases, the, the debt to GDP ratio is about 104%, at least in the States. In China, it's over 300%, Right. What I don't understand is if you've got a federal balance sheet that is now at the 10 trillion or 12, 16 trillion, and you have GDP that's now shrinking from 22 down to 16 trillion, you now have the national government making up 100% of the GDP of the US in terms of the debt it's provided to the system. We're socialists. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And it's just not us. It's, it's every other country in the world that's doing the exact same thing. And so- the effects of these two tools, the quantitative easing and the universal basic income, quantitative easing, it routes the middle class. It, it literally guts them, yep. right? It polarizes the wealthy so that they get wealthier. It's, it's effectively socialism for the rich. Yep. That's what quantitative easing is, period. Universal basic income feels great at first, but then after you experience, let's just say that they've Let's just say we went back in time 10 years ago, and instead of doing QE for 10 years, they were doing universal basic income for 10 years. Okay? You would see the same crazy dynamics playing out right now after 10 years of using that tool where no one would be working. Everyone would be just sitting around doing nothing, right? and you'd have this weird franken economy in that respect. And so now, we're, I would argue you're getting ready to transition to that being the primary tool. but the, the, because they used QE first, they can't turn that spigot off because that means interest rates go up. And we, we discussed why that can't happen. So now you're, you're using both of these tools and then it's going to really start getting disgusting in, in all the things that kind of poop out the back end of that. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna, I want to move to alternative currencies here, but I want to kind of smooth the transition out with a question. When you look at the federal, you know, the federal essentially, it's essentially a federal profit and loss balance sheet statement, right? They put it out essentially every week. I sent you before this, the, the one they just put out yesterday, April 16th. And one of the line items on there, and by the way, I am no expert on this, but one of the line items is called the central, it's called central bank liquidity swaps. And over the past three weeks, over 230 billion has gone to that thing that most people don't understand. You understand it and has serious geopolitical ramifications. What does that mean when we see that central bank liquidity swap number increasing by hundreds of billions over a very short amount of time? So I don't understand this nearly as well as you might think I understand it. Um, <laughs> but if I was going to uh, explain what's going on, this is extreme dollar shortages happening around the globe. And if the U.S. does not service that and provide that liquidity into their systems, they're going to start ripping things apart in these other countries. And so that's, those, those uh, facilities were stood up in order to alleviate that uh, because there's such a demand for dollars around the world. I, I told somebody on Twitter the other day, let me see if I can get the way I phrased that I said, the dollar is not the... Uh, oh. Geez, now I can't remember how I how I phrased it. Can you can you give it's, an example of a country right now? Like, can you do you know any of the numbers of like of Chile off the top of your head or any countries where you know this is backwards? 
Can you explain yeah. it? I mean, is it basically where a country like Chile, it doesn't have enough physical assets like in the U.S. to sell off to get enough U.S. dollars because of the shortage. So to get the U.S. dollars, the U.S. government essentially has to pump it into Chile. Yes. In the form of these swaps. That, that, you nailed it. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm literally riding by the seat of my pants here, but that's basically <laughs> and, what it means. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're in the right area. This is very technical stuff. Uh, when you were going through all the repo stuff that happened, which was effectively quantitative easing, they were just masking it. Um, it what do you was, mean repo it, stuff? So you had the repo market, which is overnight money lending between oh, banks oh. and, and the, the Fed. And so that was blowing up. I want to say that started hitting in September. And they started doing all these, these repo because the repo market blew out like 10% on overnight money. Which that is, was the bottom of where you said they were, you know, we were back down to like 3.8 trillion on the balance sheet. Then it like a little blip happened up to four before COVID hit. Yes, yes, exactly. And so they were masking, the, <laughs> they got really offended if people were calling it quantitative easing. This is not quantitative easing. Who's they? The, the central bankers, whenever they do their <laughs> interviews, right? It's like, this is not quantitative easing, but yet they could never make the amount of repo that they were doing a smaller number, number as the months progressed. So leading into COVID, they were already expanding the balance sheet through the repo market. And it was only a matter of time before they were going to have to do QE. And so once the COVID hit, it was like, oh yeah, here we go. Here It's QE because of COVID. It was the perfect narrative for them to hide behind. But it was already, yeah. you're saying it was already starting to happen. Oh my God. Yeah. It was already <laughs> happening. All right. Alternatives, right? So again, my whole thing is, and again, I am in a privileged position as a white male born in North America to a middle income household. You know, there's a lot of people in way less fortunate positions than I am. I'm not feeling a ton of this personally, but I know hundreds of millions of people are uh, like, um, what has to, I mean, what right sizes this ship or do people just, again, we can't just keep printing money. So let, I mean, maybe let's go into alternatives now. When do you see some of these alternatives start to take off? So let me, uh, let me go into a discussion about, and I'm going to get to answering that, but I have to talk about something else so that it, it makes sense. And let's before do it. I do, I've got to, I've got to pimp somebody's book here. Oh, let's do it. So this book, that I've got right here. This is called The Price of Tomorrow. This is by Jeff. Jeff. Booth. Yeah, Booth. Yeah. This book is beyond phenomenal. And this book does such a great job at talking about the impacts of inflationary monetary policy and how it causes price deflation and how it, it causes technology to just accelerate. Okay. So let me, let me just give you like Preston Pish's two-minute version on Jeff's of, book of, of what Jeff is getting at with all that. So when you have an inflationary monetary policy, that means if I have $100 today, right, uh, I'm going to have less tomorrow due to inflation. And so what do I want to do with my $100? I want to invest my $100 and try to compound it so that I can outpace inflation. So if you do that for decades, what you've done is you've ex you, you're basically hitting an exponential. That, that capital investment that incentive structure to invest your money and to create technology that will improve productivity. When you do that for, for that many years and that many decades, you start hitting these exponentials. And so the example that he provides in the book, he says, if you take a piece of paper and you fold it in half, and then you fold it in half again, and you keep doing that, if you fold that piece of paper 50 times, how high, do you, if you could do it, which you can't, but if you could fold it 50 times, 
how high would that piece of paper go? And when people were asked that question, the, the usual response is like, oh, I don't know, maybe like the width of my hand or, or something like that. But the answer is shocking. The answer is it would go from the surface of the earth to the sun. That's how far the folding a piece of paper just 50 times the thickness will literally go from the surface of the earth to the sun. And so what he's, he uses that as an example to talk about when you're using inflationary monetary policy for 80 years, you have this, this Moore's law type effect that's in place with the speed at which technology is being produced, which then causes deflationary prices in the market. So like you can go out and I can buy I mean, heck, some people are writing books for free just to try to get some type of traction in the market. That's how competitive it is because but of Preston, technology. But hold on. Go, doesn't this also go both ways? You see things like Amazon obviously drive this down. I'm, I'm stealing a bit of your punchline here because I want to make sure you talk about this deeper. But you also see things where drug prices go through the roof, which is, which is not obviously cheaper prices. That's exactly right. So you, you see this, uh, and Jeff does such a better job of explaining this than me. So I would tell you, read his book. Because but do your best. Into- do your best here. This is good <laughs> stuff. This is so good stuff. He goes into great detail talking about this in his book. But um, effectively, what you get, like so, the, so your medical expenses go up. So much of this is being driven by what is incentivized by the government in order to allow these prices to to go in the directions that they're going. So like, why is CPI, that basket that measures the inflation index, so narrow in its scope? Well, it has to be because all your interest rates are based off of that basket of of commodities staying at those prices. And so you see the government, again, getting in there and manipulating these prices as to what should or shouldn't be uh, impacted by these technological advancements. You also get into... Wait, just, sorry. Give me an example of that. I don't understand. So like your price of corn, right? Or just like a basic commodity. I mean, hell, look at oil right now. It's like $20 a barrel. All of the technology in there is... It, if, it, if it serves the government's purpose of inflation, right? Then, then they'll allow that price to, to, to hit. If it's not in that index, well, then it's not in their... their which is we interest. want, which is, which is they want the prices here's, to increase drastically over time so people buy it now and not wait, right? Here's a perfect example. Look at, look at your education costs. It's gone up like 1,700% since like 1997. Well, it's because of the, the laws and, and the rules that are set in place for these lenders to, to that like if you default on your loan, it, you can't get rid of it. Right, and so then all the traction and, and education that you have to get this degree and all that kind of stuff churns the market so that those prices go up. Meanwhile, a TV, the prices drop so significantly that it's it's insane due to technology growth. So, again, Jeff does such a better job of describing this than than I can do in his book. But um, in short, what you get is this price deflation that is is impacting some things in a tremendous way. And so now you're at this point where it's so hard for the typical person to step into the market and compete because Google practically owns all of those things or they've taken so much market share because of this technological ramping that goes exponential 
that you're gutting, not only are you gutting the middle class, but you're gutting their ability to even compete in the marketplace with the skills that they have. Preston, sorry, just to be clear, you have AdWords that brings in 50 billion. They'll use that to subsidize other things, make no margin on those other things, but they drive the cost so low, no one can even come compete with them. That's what you're saying. That's right. You're, at, you're so far in the way that Jeff describes it in his book. He says, you're literally at, at fold 35 on the piece of paper. Okay. And the next fold takes you from, from and I'm, I'm, this isn't a good example, but he, but he says, when I was talking to him personally, he says, you know, on th- th- uh, fold 35, going to fold 36, you're going a distance that's the size of the earth, where when you first started off, you were just literally going a millimeter, right? Or just this really tiny, min- tiny minuscule distance. But we're so far down this accelerative uh, inflationary monetary policy that the exponentials now are massive. So like one year later, oh my God, now you're, you got driverless cars, you got artificial intelligence that's, that's rating people and how truthful they are online and like crazy stuff. You got AI writing books that are good, right? Like that's, that's insane that that kind of stuff is happening. So how does a human being compete with something like that because imagine where it's going to be in five years from now, because it's only those folds are jumping further and further and further as long as we have this inflationary monetary policy. So Preston, if you're Elizabeth Warren, you say break up Google. Well, of course, they're, what they're doing, all these arguments of people that are saying those types of things, they're getting a mop out to clean up the floor because the, the kitchen sink is flooding. But you have to stop the kitchen sink from running. It's, it's locked in place and it's, it's overflowing and the, the drain is clogged. You have to first unclog the drain and then you have to like turn the spigot off. But all the arguments that you're seeing out of most politicians are, hey, let's go get this mop and let's mop up the floor. So what so, is the clog? So what the clog is, is the inflationary monetary policy that, of the currency that has no peg. So that's why, in my humble opinion, Bitcoin comes in with such a strong position because it's going to be deflationary. It's going to be the exact opposite of inflationary monetary policy. And what you're going to find is when you are able to literally flick that in the opposite direction to what we've seen for 80 years, you're going to start slowing this down. Uh, there's tons of momentum, right? You're not going to stop the momentum of this freight train of technology growth that you've, that you've created, which we've created. Like that's what, that's what this has created. Mm-hmm. The only way you can slow that down is you have to have a, a pegged currency that is, that is, it doesn't necessarily, I don't think it has to be deflationary, but it cannot be inflationary. And sorry, explain, I'm dyslexic. So I always get these, like in my economics classes, I always got these things mixed up. When you say inflationary monetary policy, what specifically? So when we're talking, when we first started talking uh, today and we're we're talking about how these balance sheets of these central banks are expanding, that is inflationary monetary policy. So print money. They're just printing money at will as much as they can print. So can can I take a stab then at defining the inverse? So deflationary then is you want less supply of money. That's correct. You want the you want the money to be fixed. Like if there was if there was a hundred dollars in the system, you can't allow it to, to ever increase to $101 because that's inflationary monetary policy, which then has an incentive structure that creates price deflation. Got it. So you have print more money, keep it the same. You also have cut it in half over time using some math equation. 
Uh, well, what, what, I would I would tell you Bitcoin is deflationary simply because of the fact that people are going to lose their private keys. That's what's going to make it deflationary. Today, it's actually it's actually mildly inflationary. Mm-hmm. Um, but through the halving events, it makes it less inflationary. And then the next halving event makes it even less inflationary. Because there's le- less supply, less supply, less supply. It's, it's dropping less supply onto the market. And then eventually in 21 whatever, it, it becomes capped. And it's at 21 million coins, mm-hmm. which means it's just this compound of, of currency. There's, there's not anything being added. There's so nothing being taken away. But isn't that world, you, though, of have and have nots, whoever has the most coins, whoever's the best at mining? No. So, and this, this starts getting very technical. Um, one of the unique things about the mining structure is because of, uh, because of uh, Moore's law, the people who are, who are bringing new mining rigs onto the network can, can perform. If, if, let's say you bought a mining rig four years ago and I bought one today. My mining rig can, can mine four times the amount of Bitcoins than yours than yours can because of that's right because of Moore's law and so me stepping into the market especially here at this having event where the supply gets cut in half you on that that rig that was that you purchased four years ago you're literally going to have to turn the thing off okay so you were the you were the early adopter you were the the entrant to it right so now you have to turn your rig off and I get to keep mine on and I just showed up to the scene so that's one of the unique things about the Bitcoin protocol is it's incentivizing new miners to have a, a larger chunk of the, the reward, uh, which then pushes the coins out into more of the population, which then drives the price. Right. And Don't. so, since I'm sitting on that fat margin, I'm the one that actually drives it. I drive the price through this next halving event to the next stock to flow level, which is, I know I'm throwing out all these terms and I'm, I might be confusing the living hell out of people, but. Um, that's what drives the price after the having events. Yeah, no, I mean, think about it like, you know, you know, this machine spits out, I'm going to watch this. I've done my research here because I interviewed a couple people. You have this machine that essentially spits out 144 blocks a day to be mined, right? And it's been right now, it's like 1800, essentially Bitcoin per day are available to mine. That's going to cut here in the next 30 days down to about only 900 per day to mine. And your argument is with Preston and his new fancy mining rig, because of Moore's law, can mine more effectively than me who invested in this stuff like four years ago. So I can't keep wealth. It's like, if I die with fiat, I can't keep my billions anymore because someone more efficient is going to come along. So what happens is, is I'm as the new miner with that new fresh rig, I'm so far in the money that if you cut my flow in half, which is what the having does, my reward flow, if you cut that in half, I'm still in the money and I don't have to, I don't have to sell. I, I still have to sell to pay my electrical bills, but I'm, I'm selling to pay my electrical bills with a margin. I'm making money doing it. But okay. on the electric bills, though, Preston, so here's where I get lost in this. The argument on Bitcoin is decentralization, but you still have a connection of fiat and Bitcoin because mining costs energy. And the way most people, you have to pay for the rig, the fancy new rig you just bought. There are countries like China and Iceland that are subsidizing that energy cost. And you are actually seeing centralization of mining technologies, the opposite of what everyone wanted to have happen, which was decentralized mining. You're actually seeing mining be centralized because of this fiat influence. How do we get around that? Um, I don't. There's nothing we can do because this protocol is completely decentralized and it's got a mind of its own. That's that's first and foremost. 
Um, I think that you've seen the mining nest itself into certain areas, but what's interesting over time, it's shifted. So like I would tell you in the 2017 timeframe, you had an enormous amount of the hashing power coming out of China. Today, I would argue you have a, you've had a massive shift of hashing power come into the North America region. Why? I don't know. I, I, I can't answer that. Um, you know, you'd have, to fo- you'd have to follow somebody who is um, much better at the whole mining thing. I'm not a miner. I, I try to understand how it works uh, so that I understand the, the essence of Bitcoin. But there's some very smart miners out there that could probably answer that question. Okay, well, let's go back to our world then, which is the collapse of fiat. Your argument was earlier, there has to be a strong alternative. So what has to happen with Bitcoin where I can go buy food? With, like, is it that? I have to, Safeway has to accept Bitcoin. I can go buy food with Bitcoin. And I realize I don't, you know, I can buy that Coke for a dollar still today. But if I use dollars, it's a dollar eighty because of inflation. So this is one of the biggest misnomers that I think people have on Bitcoin is they think that people have to start using it in buying a cup of coffee or going to the grocery store in order for the price to go up for the utility piece of utility it. Utility valuing, yeah. Yeah. I would, I know this is really controversial, but I would tell you that I don't think that that's necessarily required for it to go to the next, I call them orbits, the next price orbit. Um, and so the reason why is... It, I'm sorry. It's, it's hard for me to explain some of this stuff because it gets really deep. I know. So, it's tough stuff. So um, what's driving the price today and pr- for the last 10 years, in my very humble opinion, the thing that has been driving the price floor, and I want to emphasize the price floor, is the electrical expenses for the miners. They set the floor completely because this difficulty adjustment that happens every two weeks will make it easier for them if a bunch of them drop out. And so it, it forces them to come in. And then relative to that reward flow, it polarizes the price at what's called a stock to flow value. We could share an article for people to read if they really want to dig into this. Okay. So as that having event occurs, immediately what happens is, is the price, and I don't want to say immediately, usually it's like a month or two delay after the having event, you start to see the price run. And the price starts running to that next orbit that's higher. And define that, by the way. Give me a range. I know you want to give a specific number. We're at 7,000 today. What do you think the next orbit is? I think the next orbit's anywhere from eighty dollars to $100,000. Really? Yeah. And I think you're going to get there by summer next year. How is this not... See, everyone tells me this, but if everyone knows it, it should already be priced into the price of Bitcoin, just well, like... That's, no. So that's, that's another big mis- misnomer. So because the flow has not changed on this... Mm-hmm. The, the, re, the reward flow that we're seeing right now for the current four-year cycle that we're in has not changed. Your electrical costs are somewhat the same throughout that four-year period of time. And so these miners are mining. They're receiving Bitcoin into their treasury. Then they have to sell them to pay their electrical expenses. And you basically meet like this homeostasis type situation at the end of that four-year cycle that polarizes the price to where it's at. So the reason that you see the price go on these these massive ramps. So, like I, I would tell you that I think the next orbit level is eighty to one hundred thousand dollars. Do I think that it's gonna that it's just gonna go up to that number and stop? Hell no! It's gonna go straight through that number. It's probably gonna go to two to three hundred thousand, and then if it doesn't meet its escape velocity, which is a whole other term, which is in my opinion completely dependent on all this other macro stuff that we've been talking about whether it has a total separation and it becomes completely adopted across the world, right? 
if it goes up and it hits 200, 300,000 and it doesn't happen, well, then it's going to come back down into that 80 to $100,000 mark. And it'll stay there until the next four four year having event. Anyone listening to this is immediately selling all of their Zoom and American Express stock and buying Bitcoin at $7,000. Why shouldn't everyone be doing that right now? I can't answer that question because I think that's what they should probably be doing. So are you, or do you have more exposure right now to Bitcoin than you do equity, American equities? I don't have any equities right now. You, have, you hold no equities at all? None. Wow. So that's a f- true statement then. You, 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 more of your net worth is tied to Bitcoin right now than U.S. equities. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. This is the guy that I'm like watching like Warren Buffett, the equity king. At least. So this is, this is what people have to understand. I fully believe in all of those things. I mean, come on, man. I, if, if I pull my, my book yeah, out but there, you are You and Stig are like my, the guys. If I take my security analysis book behind me <laughs> and, and crack it open, you'll see like every single page on it highlighted. So I believe in all of those things. And all of those rules and principles are going to come back when you have a sound currency, right? Because let's, let's face the facts. Businesses are always going to be around. Yep. That, that's always going to happen. Um, but right now you're in a very unique environment that has never happened in any of our lifetimes that I believe is absolutely playing out. Um, I'm not the only person that thinks this. You got Ray Dalio, who's one of the wealthiest people, I would argue probably the best investor on the face of the planet, uh, because he not only understands the, the micro side, he also understands the macro side. Mm-hmm. In 2008, 2009, when the rest of the market was down 60%, he was up like over 9%. So like this guy, his personal net worth is over $16 billion. He, I mean, I listened to him a week ago. He says, we're, yeah, we're in a depression at this point. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not just crazy Preston that's saying that the currency is going to fail. I mean, Ray Dalio, who I trust probably more than anybody when it comes to financial markets is saying the exact same thing. So is the, maybe what people would then debate over the next century is what becomes the real alternative? Ray might argue it's something else besides Bitcoin. You're going to say Bitcoin. Other people might say something else. Well, uh, the, the big argument, I think, I'd say you have, three, you have three main arguments. You have another Bretton Woods, okay, that everyone has to come to the table. And as we talked about earlier, I think the game theory on that is not good. Um, and then they, the, all these countries believe that the... They established a new gold standard, a new Bretton Woods. Will US, the US dollar, though, after that new agreement, you think still be the global reserve currency or does China have an opportunity to step in here or somebody else? Well, that's, that's why I think that discussion is going to be so hard for anybody to have is because what you just said is what it will all come down to. Yeah. And no one's going to want to agree to it. But I want to be as objective as possible here. So that's one, that's one course of action. The next course of action is the SDR that the International Monetary Fund that has its own currency, which is the special drawing rights, the SDR, is going to become global money. That's the next argument. Um, I can shoot so many holes through that that, it, that it's ridiculous. Because you're not... You're not you're, I'm, I'm going to be objective here. So that's your next course of action. Yeah. Your last course of action is that there's some type of technological solution that steps in as global money whether that's Bitcoin or whatever crypto coin you want to you call it, that, that it's a decentralized protocol that establishes itself as sound money, then everyone demands it. I think those are your three courses of action that, that play out moving forward. Fascinating. Now, for people that are listening to this, you can assign whatever probabilities you want to those. And I don't want to bias people in the way that they see that because 
I have strong opinions about it. And, and I don't care who you are. You have gaps in your thinking, whoever it is. I don't care who you are. There's gaps in your thinking because there's no way you can know all the different pieces to this insanely complex puzzle. Um, so, but, but my, my opinion is that the last is the, is the highest probability outcome. So I'm positioned for that. All right. That makes good sense. Let's wrap up here. We have to touch oil quickly. You're, you're seeing something just that's really never happened in history, which is it starts off with Saudi Arabia and Russia essentially saying, you know, getting in a price war, right? So you see production go through the roof. Uh, and obviously, you see, you see prices obviously collapse. But now no one's driving. Everyone's on lockdown. Nobody needs gas. And we're entering this very weird thing where kind of like how you put clothes in your closet. And at some point, you can't fit more clothes in your closet to store them. There is nowhere else to store the extra oil that is waiting to be consumed when the market recovers. So does that mean all of the drillers shut down and the U.S. loses its 3 million uh, you know, shale jobs or shale employees? What, what happens there, Preston? Yeah, I think they've got some major concerns on the horizon. Uh, now, where you might see, back to your argument about uh, national security, you might see some of this. I mean, we're giving money to everybody at this point, literally everybody. <laughs> so maybe they kind of move to the front of the line to protect national interests. And uh, I could see that playing out. So anybody who's going short on something like that, there's your counter argument of why you're short might not work out for you, despite everything kind of pointing to this being very bad for them. Um, yeah, so this is another point, by the way, we don't have our beautiful Adam Smith invisible hand anymore. It's does no. the government come in and save the shale business for the sake of national security and free markets now are not working. They should go bankrupt, but they're not. Yet another reason why I like Bitcoin so much. Interesting. It's completely free and open. It's, it's, yeah. it's completely free and open. And if anybody tries to manipulate it, they're just going to get hammered. We covered a ton. Holy <laughs> mackerel. Did we miss anything? We anything? were talking fast. You I know. We covered a lot, though. Is there anything that you really want to chat about that you think other people, other interviewers are just missing and no one's talking about? I'll say this on the Bitcoin thing. And this goes for any type of position that you hold. If you don't have conviction on the position, it's going to eat your lunch. Um, especially, especially when you deal with something that's very volatile, i.e. Bitcoin. So... Like if you listen to this and you're saying, oh, that made a lot of sense. I'm going to go buy some Bitcoin. You go out and buy it for $7,000. Like the price could go down to $5,000 tomorrow. It, it does that kind of stuff all the time. It's super volatile. I think the annual volatility on Bitcoin is like 60, 65%. Oil is like 30%. Just to kind of put this in context, it's like 30 or 40% or something like that. So you're stepping into something that is insanely volatile. So if you don't have conviction on a trade like that, meaning I, I really don't understand why I did it. I just did it because I heard somebody say they did it. And so I bought it. Like you're going to get tore up, tore up because you're not going to be able to emotionally handle it. So I think the best advice I could give somebody is you've got to get yourself. If you want to buy Bitcoin, I would tell you the first thing you need to do is try to read at least three to four books on it and get yourself as smart as possible. On and name it. the first two you recommend. So uh, the first one I would say is the Bitcoin standard. This was written by Saifedina Moose. Um, highly, highly recommend that book. Um, you know, the, the book that got me interested in this, uh, literally back in 2015 is when I, I bought my first Bitcoins. Um, and I read a book called The Age of Cryptocurrency. 
And for me, this was a fascinating book. It's very old relative to a lot of other books that are on the market. Um, and I think it's a really good in- introductory uh, book on uh, Bitcoin in general and, and really kind of cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology, all that kind of stuff. It's a really good book for that. But I would tell you, Safedine's book is hands down the best one probably on the market to, to buy and read about Bitcoin because it talks about the economics. It talks about some of the technology. Um, you know, if we were going to talk about another thing, if you and I got together and we were going to talk about something else, and this is way out in the, the future of where I see everything going, I would want to talk about decentralized applications and how dApps um, are going to just change so much. Get, get, make that real for a lot of people that'll go way over. Make that real for a second. If dApps take off in 2030, what's an example of a real dApp people are using? So imagine this. You like to use Twitter. You like to use Facebook. Okay. You log onto your Twitter, your Twitter account, you make some posts, some people like it, and you receive money for doing that. That's a dap. Yep. This is fascinating for me because I usually use SaaS interviews and you always look at marketplaces. And what you realize is a marketplace doesn't work without a buyer and a seller. Facebook doesn't work without a poster and a buyer of the ad spend. And when you start actually just giving the utility value in the form of coins or whatever tech you know, currency to the people that make the value, there is no Mark Zuckerberg anymore. Yeah. And that's and what's fascinating about all of that is if you move to a world that that all of these things that are applications today move into the protocol layer, you now have control of your data and your privacy, and it's not being exploited through machine learning and, and big data and, and ads, so, which we all hate. Ad, well, and so the, the people, the way you're making money on that are the ads are still being run, but the, the ad, the, the people that are paying to run those ads are basically swapping whatever currency they've got into the currency of that protocol. And then it's released to the person who, who the ads um, posts are being run against. Right? Yeah, it's a direct, it's like a, it's like a Google a AdWords without AdWords taking 3%. Bingo. Yeah. You so you're, you are an EOS fan then. Well, I'm okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm highly skeptical of all these companies that say they're doing this right now. And I think the, one of the main reasons why, like, I own cryptocurrency, but I only own one, and it's Bitcoin. I don't literally, I literally don't own any other crypto coin other than Bitcoin. Okay. The reason why is I'm very skeptical at the ability of these new protocols to onboard people. So, uh, a couple months back, you had Jack Dorsey come out and basically say, I'm going to cannibalize Twitter. I'm going to literally turn Twitter into a protocol. And so he, he is somebody that if, if Twitter came out with its own protocol and had its own decentralized tokens, I would buy the living hell out of those things, <laughs> right? Because he already has the users that he can onboard into the new client of the decentralized application that he would build the protocol that he would build. I think all these other ones are, they're trying to do it, but they don't have that onboarding process. And, and so why would Jack do that, by the way? What's the incentive structure for him to do that? He's sick of short sellers in the, in the US, you know, in, in the New York Stock Exchange and says, screw it, I'm going to give up all my power and go decentralized. Because if you don't, if you don't uh, cannibalize yourself in Silicon Valley, somebody else is going to do it for you. I love that. All right. I want to end on a few true-false questions here, okay? Um, oh, God. I know these are going to be tricky, but these are like, 
this is me, and this is the caveat for everyone. This is me speculating. Sometimes when I fall asleep at night, my head's on my pillow, I go, well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And I go, oh my gosh, these are crazy, but I need to ask, I want to ask someone about this stuff. So Preston, they're not that crazy, but so Preston, first one here, a lot of people very worried about China and the States. You know, we're very, we want to win in America. It's great. People worry about China. When I look at China, I see someone that is dependent on other countries to buy their cheap goods because they don't have a young population that can buy them domestically. I see a one belt, one road policy that is in serious jeopardy because countries they're buying up ports in, whether it's Djibouti or Iran or India, they don't like them because these loans are nasty and aggressive. So that's in jeopardy. China is highly dependent on oil from the Middle East, which means they have to go through the Strait of Hormuz. They then have to go around Iran. They have to go around India, which they've been at wars. They have to go through the Malaysian Straits, the South China Sea, very dangerous in terms of actually them securing their oil. And then they have enemies on all sides. They have Russia. It's very hard to defend. I don't see China actually threatening the US when it comes to them surpassing our GDP by 2030. Do you see China surpassing America's GDP by 2030? I just don't know. I, I don't know enough. There's too many variables for me to have uh, an opinion on it. Okay, next question. I, I have a feeling <laughs> I have a feeling the answer to all yours are going to be what you just said, but we'll try it. Next question. This is not a political question, although it's going to sound like one. I don't care if Hillary Clinton is president right now or Donald Trump. You realize when you start giving payouts to American voters, you can't turn that off. True or false, UBI will exist 12 months from now, and especially through November, because whoever's in charge realizes that drastically helps your ability to get reelected. True. If I'm, if I'm going to just say true or false, true. Two sentences of caveat. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can always turn it off. The consequence is not going to be pretty. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, we'll end on those two. Those were two good ones. Preston, man, this was great. I appreciate you made, making the time. And hey, where, so where can people, you, by the way, you talked a lot about Jeff Booth's book. You're reading it now. You're interviewing him, I believe, coming up. Where can people hear that interview when you release it? So it's going to be rolling out, not this Saturday, but next Saturday. Um, and I mean, he, I've already had the interview. We're just in the editing right now. and. Uh, I mean, he just crushes it out of the ballpark. So, one of the, so tell your podcast, the name of their podcast, so people can so go look the it name up. Of the pod, yeah, just go on to whatever podcast app you use. Just search We Study Billionaires and it's, it'll be the first thing you find. My name is Preston, last name Pish. Uh, I love interacting with people on Twitter. So you know, hit me up on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I, I would tell you, honestly, Nathan, having talked with a lot of people through the years, Jeff Booth is is one of the most intelligent people I've probably ever talked to. Guys, Preston Pish, one of the more interesting conversations I've had around all these topics. Check out his podcast, We Study Billionaires. They do a great job. Also, a guy you got to walk out. I mean, this guy is like a media genius. So you watch this network, him and Sticker Building. It's really great. Preston, appreciate you making the time. Hey, big fan, Nathan. Thank you very much.